Welcome to Unabridged Conversations, the Black Radical Tradition. This podcast features unedited interviews from most of the participants in the documentary film project, Conversations, the Black Radical Tradition, released in 2021 by BK Scholar Productions. Each interview is introduced by Conversations director, filmmaker, and interviewer, Edwion Easy Stokes. This episode of Unabridged Conversations, the Black Radical Tradition, features veteran civil rights activist, Reverend Herbert Daughtry. This interview was filmed between 2017 and 2018 in Brooklyn, New York. We're going to start. So if you could just start by uh, telling me who you are and talk about uh, your situation, talk about what you're doing at this church, what the church is. My name is Herbert Daniel Daughtry. Uh, I serve as the national presiding minister for the House of the Lord Churches. Also, uh, recently, uh, I created the Herbert Daughtry Global Ministries. I was born in Savannah, Georgia, January the 13th, 1931. So that makes me 87 years old. Uh, I am the fourth generation of uh, ministers in our family, or fourth consecutive ministers in our family. I have a couple of daughters who are the fifth generation and the grandson who is the sixth generation. This is my 60th year in the ministry. October of this year, I will have been 60 years as, as pastor uh, of this church. I came to Brooklyn. I'm sorry. No. Yeah. Uh, and Jersey City when I was about 12. Uh, my father, the minister, the pastor, was following the flock. People were moving northward. Uh, and Westwood from the South, and he opened a storefront church. I became involved in the, quote, asphalt jungle, close quote. Uh, I was uh, the butt end of jokes. I was the buffoon that was straight from Bama, Georgia, had a heavy accent and became um, what we said picked on. Well, I said that if I'm a buffoon, I'm gonna be the baddest buffoon in Brooklyn. And that got me into a lot of trouble. Uh, I was very disruptive in classrooms. If, if, if they're gonna make fun of me in classroom, then nobody is gonna get any work done. Eventually, uh, I served jail time, and uh, in fact, it is where I had my, what they say, epiphany. It was where I committed my life to Jesus Christ and said that uh, uh, if he would uh, be with me, accept me as I was, I served him all the days of my life. That was in 1953. and. Uh, I became a minister, and as I said, for 60 years I've been pastoring of this church. Our church was a different approach from church. Um, we developed what we call a holistic approach to ministry. Uh, my uh, uh, critique of the church at that time 
was that it was too passive and it was too European, too Europeanized. The, 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 the artwork was all white Jesus, white saints, white everybody, but the devil, he because the devil was black and all the bad guys were black. And uh, the approach toward our struggle was, was too passive. In the churches, uh, they were too readily acceptance of the turn the other cheek, the love your enemy. And I, I thought that there was a misunderstanding, a misinterpretation of the teaching of Jesus as it applied to our time and our condition. So we developed in our ministry, the challenge in our ministry was how to maintain our fervor, how to maintain the Pentecostal fire, the Pentecostal passion, the Pentecostal commitment uh, to, uh, to the teachings of Jesus related to how you should live your life, uh, how you should treat other people. So we added um, uh, to our church and its doctrine uh, a more radical approach, a more revolutionary approach toward, uh, toward the struggle. We uh, became aligned with uh, those historical figures and those uh, uh, strugglers who would be considered radical, revolutionary, etc. Uh, in our reading of history, we saw that uh, people of African ancestry were the builders of civilizations. Uh, they were the, the philosophers, they were the mathematicians. And then what they ascribed uh, to Greek uh, philosophical preeminence were basically, according to um, James' book, Stolen Legacy, was really uh, Egyptian mystery system, uh, philosophical systems. And Africa had been the cradle of civilization. And, and even in this country, uh, we read, studied the history of black churchmen and women. Uh, they were not docile, they were not, in fact, I used to have a friendly debate with my radical revolutionary friends that, that is before the computer came, that whatever tactic, whatever strategy, whatever program you identify uh, today, I will, uh, I will identify in the black church. I would say that there were black church men and women who tried that. Uh, even when black power came, 1966 in Greenwood, Mississippi, uh, when Stokely, Kwame, uh, green black power. There was nothing new about that. I mean, Henry Highland Garnet had argued that point with Fred Douglas, what, a hundred and some years before, uh, that the, the liberation struggle, uh, the anti-apartheid, the abolitionist struggle should be led by um, uh, black people, by African people, by, uh, you couldn't have white people, uh, Henry Lloyd Garrison, uh, who headed this uh, civil rights movement, and uh, John Brown, and not the civil rights, who headed the abolitionist movement, John Brown, leading the struggle. Black people, um, 
have, should lead the struggle. Uh, the, uh, remember one of the great sermons, uh, let your resistance be, let your motto be resistance, resistance, resistance. So what, what uh, even, even the call to a violent reaction should it become necessary? I mean, there were those who made that point. And uh, hey, um, Nat Turner was a good old Baptist preacher. Gabriel Proza was a good churchman. Denmark Vesey was a good churchman. In fact, the slave masters understood that. Uh, after in 1920, with, with Denmark Vesey's uh, attempt to uh, resist on a massive scale in Charleston, uh, South Carolina, uh, and, and also uh, Nat Turner's rebellion in Virginia, uh, they, they roll off the press waves of legislation uh, forbidding black people to meet together. In, in, in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, they, they disbanded uh, the Hempstead Street Methodist Church because the slave masters understood that uh, the leaders were meeting at the church. And Nat Turner's rebellion in Virginia, uh, legislation were enacted uh, to forbid uh, black people from coming together for religious purposes. So uh, the slave masters understood that. And the early uh, Africans uh, named their church and their movement African. Uh, the oldest, one of the oldest churches is what the African, African Episcopal uh, Zion, the African Methodist Episcopal Church the African free school. So culturally, uh, in fact, uh, Bishop McNeil Turner uh, had calculated how much the country owes. We, we got to talking about uh, reparation as it were a new thing emanating out of a radical uh, revolutionary uh, thinking of the people in our contemporary society. But I mean, Bishop McNeil Turner had calculated how much this nation owes us in terms of reparation. So in studying that history, we took a more radical, more revolutionary, and more militant approach towards struggle. Um, we were willing to uh, go into the street and civil disobedience. And, and I noticed another thing in reading the life of Jesus. He didn't condemn the revolutionaries and the radicals uh, up in the hills who thought that the only way they were going to gain their freedom is by overthrow of the Roman uh, Empire. Uh, in fact, he had a couple of these radicals in his group among his disciples. Uh, so uh, while he did not advocate violence, he, he seemed to have come to the conclusion that a violent revolution at that time would not work, was not the way to go. They would smash out, squash out the movement, and he would never gain, the movement would die out. Uh, so that he came to the conclusion. And because I say he came to the conclusion, I'm not sure that he didn't struggle with the idea that maybe the militants, the zealots, as they were called, uh, had a point of being violently approached, the violent approach to a change 
because in the Garden of Eden, I mean, in the Garden of Gethsemane, you remember when they came for Jesus to arrest him, one of his disciples had a sword and he cut off the ear of the, uh, of the Roman soldier who came for Jesus. Well, it, I mean, why did he have a sword in the first place? If you were nonviolent, why would you allow your disciple to carry a sword? I mean, ain't that a sword isn't a Saturday night special. It's not a switchblade, so that even almost even a blind man can see a sword. And yet, Peter had the sword when they went into the garden. And Jesus, why didn't he tell Peter, "Don't bring your sword home. Leave your stuff home." But he let had had the sword in the garden. Was Jesus wrestling with this question? Uh, the approach toward change. He, is, is it violent? Is that a way to go? Will that, will that be successful? And he decided that it wouldn't be. So um, I never, never condemned people for the methods or the strategy that they use. Um, and then, as I say, culturally, we understood the history, understood the role of black people, people of African ancestry. And understanding this, we're able to bridge the gap to, you know, people, African people in the diaspora were often fragmented uh, to the benefit of European, you know. So, but understanding our cultural background, our history, and understanding what happened to us, uh, we were, we, 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 a part of our ministry was cultural, historic, uh, and, and a part of our ministry was uh, let's say a more radical approach toward social change. I want to ask, um, how did uh, Reverend Dorcher become known as an activist pastor? Uh, talk about some of your upbringing. What did you see in the streets? Sort of what were you doing that sort of made you decide that you had to jump on, on the sideline or come from the sidelines and sort of be a force to be reckoned with? I, I, I don't know that I was ever on the sidelines. I, I understand what you mean by the question, but I don't know I was on the sideline. I've tried to understand that. And, and then trying to understand that, I go way back uh, to growing up in the South. When I was, what, six, maybe seven, I, where we lived in Savannah, Georgia, uh, on um, uh, West 44th Street and Florence, uh, going south, going south toward Florida, uh, was the white part of the street. Uh, the, paved, the street was paved, the houses were gleaming white. Um, uh, there were flowers and, 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 and manicured lawns. And in the middle of that block, uh, there was a, a, a beautiful park with, with, with moss hanging trees. And that park ran to the next block, which was Victory Drive. And of course, we couldn't go through there at night. Uh, and I, and the other part of the street, uh, the street seemingly always had puddles of water. Uh, there were uh, fields, uh, lots, empty lots between the houses with, with uh, trash. Uh, and some of the houses were dilapidated, some were uh, torn down, and. And I would stand in the street and wonder why. So even then, there was a graphic difference 
in the way whites lived and the way blacks did. And then we, we moved to Augusta, Georgia, uh, and I was about eight, uh, nine. Uh, I used to be very much concerned with uh, black people shopping. Uh, Chinese owned the grocery stores, and I was hired by the Chinese, uh, and I would observe uh, our people coming in to shop and seemingly always penny-pinching and never having enough. And I used to try to make that up. I'd steal everything I could uh, to put in the bags and give them more whatever they wanted to buy. And I knew that I was going to get caught, and I knew that the person who uh, was spying on me was a young uh, one of my peers who worked for the Chinese, who looked Asian, and uh, in fact, they had adopted him. He was uh, one of them, uh, and 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 I I found out later, years and years later, I met his sister, uh, years and years later, and she told me, well, their grandmother was Asian, uh, so he was spying on me, and eventually, uh, they caught me and they fired me. But I go back to those at the, these two incidents, even before. I was 10, I mean, here's a child really trying to figure out what is this difference about white folks and black folks. And then here is a child before 10 trying to even the score, trying to do something to help these people. So that, that's a background. And then in the South where you had the rigid segregation system, and then you had the KKK. I remember how the, the atmosphere would be charged when, whenever the name of the KKK would come up. So uh, there was a, it was a sensitivity to racial issues, I mean, before I was 10, and the attempt to do something about it in my own way. There was an attempt to, to, to look for an analysis as to the disparity between white and black. So when I came to, to, to New York, to Brooklyn, and, and as I said, uh, got involved in the, in the rough, tumble street life, my first arrest, my first arrest, hey, there were four of us. I was a teenager. Four of us were walking the street, coming home at night from Prospect Place. It used to be called the market. We used to have the push carts lying in the street during the day. And we were coming from the market and going home. I lived on Dean Street. And just as youngsters playing around. And I'm, I said, well, you know, I'm Superman. And I can fly all over the place. And they, we stopped at the store. And I said, you want to see me fly? Watch me fly. And I stood in the, <laughs> I stood in the doorway of this store. And I said, I'm going to fly over this transom. And I just stood there and obviously, you know, acting like I was going to fly. On this, across the street, there was this white man coming, walking like he was drunk and sat on the, on the, on the bench. And obviously, I didn't fly. <laughs> and, and, and we never broke a window, never touched anything, um, and never even touched the, the, the store. And we went up and down the street. You know, you know, kidding. Ah, you can't fly. Well, you come back tomorrow. I'm gonna fly tomorrow. I didn't eat. I, I didn't eat enough. And all of a sudden, we were surrounded. 
by police. It was as though we had robbed a bank or something. We were surrounded by police. We were taken to the precinct. And we'll call all kind of young black so-and-so-and-sos, you black so-and-so-and-sos, and locked up and sent away for two weeks in the old Raymond Street Jail and, uh, and two years on probation for nothing. And uh, in that jail scene, uh, because I had become popular, you know, as street-wise, street-tough, in addition, I was a good athlete, you know, and, and being a good athlete, a good musician, usually you, you have a whole lot of popularity. People flock to you. So I, I was known as the doc. And when I went to jail, I mean, those young brothers who were there greeted me as though I were uh, a king. Hey, the doc is in here, man, how you doing? Hey. And, and when I got out, uh, I, I, I was given a red carpet treatment. Man, they flocked around me. Man, you went away. You went to jail. Yeah, yeah, I went to jail. Ain't nothing, man. Ain't nothing to go into jail. You know, I did. Man, I did that on one foot, you know. And, and, and coming out then with that kind of backdrop and, and that kind of treatment that here, you know, if I was a white kid, they might have slapped me around and say, tell, call the parents, come up, tell his father to come here and pick him up. Instead, they sent me to jail. They sent us to jail. We went to jail. And we were on probation for a long period of time and hadn't done a thing. So obviously, that would uh, sensitize me very much at a very personal level to the injustice of the criminal justice system. Uh, so I became a street hustler, street wise, street, and had some more arrests. And, and during the time of incarceration, I had time to read, to study, to think. Malcolm said he found Allah or Elijah Muhammad while he was incarcerated. Well, I found Jesus, or they found us. And once, you know, the human mind is something. Once you can, once you, you, you strike something and ignite a, a spark, and it opens up a whole new world, and you just want to read everything, you know, anything anybody breathes. And that's what happened to me. When I felt that God had forgiven me all of my crimes, all of my sins, all that God had forgiven me and that God had accepted me and that God had called me as a, as a servant, as a partner to change the world. It, it, well, I tried to read everything I could. And in the process, uh, I read every kind of history, particularly about our people. The, the, the other thing I did, which was quite a, extraordinary, I read, you know, I, we all read Malcolm, how Malcolm said that if I, could, if I knew every word in the dictionary, I would know everything. Well, I had my own system of, of when I would study, what I would study, the subjects I would study, when I would study, I set up my own system. And then to test the system, I would identify people who believe opposite. I would deliberately look for, hunt for, send the word out for anybody who believed other than I did because I wanted to debate. I wanted to make sure that what I believe, my belief, would stand the test against any ideology that would be out there. And so we'd have these debates with the Muslims and, and with radical uh, leaders and with 
socialist leaders and, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so when I came home, uh, I came home with a different view, a different approach to ministry uh, than the church at the time. I still do that. I still, in Jersey City, I still walk the streets. Just to be, I, I tell the young brothers and sisters, y'all y'all are members of my church. My church is the MLK Junior Open Street Church and you are a founding member. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's amazing the, the respect and, and that I receive. Um, it's, it's it, you know, it, it's simply amazing. So I was different. I was not like the usual minister. I was, I was a different, I had a different background, I had a different understanding. And, uh, and, 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 and so I, we started with a storefront. There was another thing, my dad had had a storefront. So um, I could experiment, you know, only had a few people, a few very elderly people, no young people. I used to go out in the street and look for young people, you know, to join, to become members of our church. So I, I was free, I had the freedom to experiment, to put into practice, you know, the things that I had learned, the things that I had experimented with while incarceration. And uh, so I had a different approach. I would look for uh, uh, the radical uh, uh, leaders in the community. That's how I got to know Sonny Carson, is that I heard him speaking in a park. And he, at that time, he called white folks honkies. <laughs> and uh, he was in his militant way. And I said to him afterward, I said, man, listen, uh, I, I found him out, I found where his office was on Fulton Street. And I went to see him. I said, man, listen, I heard you speaking the other day. And I like what you're saying. Uh, you know, I uh, would like to become a part of the movement. And he said, huh. I don't like no preachers, you know. <laughs> I said, well, I ain't nothing, man. I, I don't like some of them either. But I didn't come here for a love affair. I just come here to find out how I can participate with you in making the lives of our people better. And he laughed. He said, <laughs> all right, man. And put out his hand. <laughs> yeah, we became great friends, uh, you know, ever, ever since. We became great friends ever since. I should stop with any quote. Um, let me ask you, um, what achievements in your career are you most proud of? And also, I, I also want to ask you a story. Um, I was told, you can confirm or deny, that you walked to Washington for the Million Man March. Yes. The Million Man March. So it's, talk about what you're most proud about in your career, and then talk about how you ended up walking to DC. How does something like that happen? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm, I'm proud, first of all, with my family, you know. I come, my dad was a preacher, but he, they separated. My mother and father separated. I could never understand. I was bounced back and forward from Augusta to Savannah, bounced back and forward, Brooklyn to Jersey City. And, uh, it, and so I said that if I ever got married, I wanted to stay married. And, uh, you know, their raising children was different. My father never really interacted with, with us as his boys, and uh, he was a very quiet man. He showed his love by simply uh, being present, I guess, uh, keeping us in church. Uh, and I studied, another, I studied 
manhood, family life, women, while I was incarcerated. So I said, well, if I ever got married, I'm going to stay married, and I'm going to raise my children uh, by being interactive with them. And so I'm very proud of my family. When they were children, you know, it took a great time. I put magazines in their cribs. Uh, when my firstborn went to, to school, we prepared her for class. I keep them close by. Uh, you know, I, I taught my firstborn uh, when I was studying Greek. You know, that's the New Testament language. Uh, studying Greek, I taught her Greek. She can today. She can do better than I. She knows her Greek alphabet today. And so my children, I'd say, wherever they went, it was any, any of their achievements, any the graduation was a, was a family event. We would all be there, um, even for the grand. It's just it's a family event, and and so I'm I'm very grateful for my family. Many of my colleagues uh, seldom do you find them with their families around them and involved. Uh, my firstborn Leah uh, was two times the CEO of the National Democratic Convention. She um, made history. Uh, nobody had ever been asked to do that. But after the 2008 convention, Obama was propelled into the White House. After the 2016 uh, convention, Mrs. Hillary Clinton asked her to come and do it again. 2016, she pulled off again, one of the greatest Democratic conventions they ever had. Uh, and today, uh, she uh, has initiated this call to black women, Power Rising in Atlanta, February, uh, what I think, 22 through 25. It reminds me of, uh, uh, of my role in forming the National Black United Front. So I think my family, my second born is here at the church. Uh, she's an artist, has sung, danced professionally, but has taken over the churches, church-related uh, social programs. We have many programs uh, that we do for the people. Uh, she's administrator has really concretized all of the vision of how it should work. So my third daughter is a principal and the minister in the family. She's a principal. Uh, the, my son, the last one, he, uh, he was a lawyer, uh, Georgetown graduate. Uh, was passed a bar exam, Philadelphia, New York. Uh, studied, uh, was court, did his law practice in court. And one day he said, Dad, I. All I'm doing is plea bargaining. I got to do something preventive. So he got into education, and so he's an educator. At one point, was assistant uh, school superintendent uh, in Newark, and and still advisor to exec or executive advisor to uh, train uh, teachers and principals. Um, grandson is the sixth generation, and very they all grounded in the church. They all have some role in the church. My wife is, we've been married 56 years now, and uh, she's a minister. She pastors this church. I'm the national leader of all of our churches. And so number one, my family. Number two, I think that I, uh, I think I radicalized the church. And, and I, I think I brought uh, the merger of culture and radicalism to the church. I mean, it's, it's kind of fashionable now. At least you can have a, 
uh, during African Liberation Day, you can put on a dashiki. You know, it's all right. It's, it's all right to talk black during February. You know, all churches have some kind of black something, you know. And, and it's all right to have a black Jesus somewhere in the church, you know. None of these things, at least culturally, were happening uh, in the church uh, that I came along. And it's all right to talk a little radical now. You know? And I like to think that I radicalized the climate for churches to become more involved. Uh, and and I, th I, I think I merged the radical revolutionary elements in our movement with the church and the more moderate movement because my, my, my hands, my feet, my life was in both. I'm perfectly at home walking the street. I'm perfectly at home. The most radical revolutionaries came here with at home. Well, Kwame was here. Uh, in fact, he spent some of his last days here. The last time he was here, we raised a substantial amount of money for him. Uh, he, was, he was at home here. In fact, Farrakhan uh, was at home here. Uh, Mandela, Wendy Mandela made a public, st first public statement here. Uh, and in fact, Joshua Nkomo, the godfather of the African liberation, Southern African Liberation Movement, was here, right up in the pulpit. And, and so uh, they were all here, all found a home here. And, and I was perfectly at home. Uh, going to the jails. I spend a, a week, uh, every one Sunday a month, the third Sunday a month, I spend in the upstate. I, I visit Sullivan, I visit Eastern, I visit Chihuahua every, every third Sunday. And then I do Sing Sing uh, the first Tuesday in every month. And plus I'm available for whatever programs they have. Uh, so I'm, I'm, at, I'm, I'm at home. I, I like walking the street. You know, I like, you know, but I'm at home in the church, uh, too. I can, I, can, I can walk with Malcolm and Martin. <laughs> and, and I like to think that I've, I've brought some unity to that scene. Uh, I, I think that I made a contribution um, in terms of even the recent negotiations that we did with the Barclays Center. The, the, the Atlantic Avenue took a lot of heat. But I had a background of being a Dr. King's um, economic uh, breadbasket uh, vice chair in New York, which, uh, which was Dr. King's idea of forcing corporate America to be more, more, more responsible, responsive to the black community. So when this development occurred here, a $4.4 billion development, occurred a few blocks from my church. Uh, I, and Ratner, I, I happened to know the Ratners. Uh, Bruce Ratner, who was the developer. Michael Ratner had been my lawyer. We had been in Central America doing the El Salvador War. We had met with some of the leaders there. And uh, so we negotiated uh, with him for what the community could get out of that. Um, it was clear to me, man, he had spent $300 million buying the New Jersey Nets to make them the Brooklyn Jet, Brooklyn Nets, and they hadn't even built an arena. They hadn't dug a, a shovel full of dirt. That something was happening, that he must have gotten the okay that uh, 
the political forces, the economic forces, was going to support this. So we not start negotiating. That was, that was what I learned out of the breadbasket, Dr. King uh, tactic of approaching breadbasket of the corporate America with demands. So out of that demand, uh, as I said, many of my radical friends and revolutionary friends, man, it took a lot of heat. My, my oldest strugglers uh, took a lot of heat. I don't know that they fully understood, or if they did, they just couldn't see, the, you know, white guys, you know, taking people's homes. That bothered me too, the eminent domain. That was the, t that was the tough part. But I, I had to settle that in my mind, in my heart, in my spirit. But what Bruce offered them was beyond the market price for their home. And once the apartments were made, they could come back at a reasonable uh, price. They could buy a, a you know, what do you call it? Condominium, right, at a reasonable price. So they would have a bundle of money and still be in the community. And if they wanted to buy another home, they'd have money to buy a home wherever they want to and still in the community if that's what they wanted. To me, that was very reasonable in terms of what I could see would be the benefit to the community. So we were able to, to, to negotiate uh, uh, 50 upper ball tickets, uh, four lower ball tickets, and a suite. Now, this wasn't got just the tickets, the tickets, who want to see us event, but it was a way of organizing the people. It was a way of educating the people. Many of these young people, in fact, we, we prioritized certain groups, seniors, youth, homeless, blah, blah, blah. And, and some of these young people don't even know what a suite looked like. I've never seen an event from a suite, that's a whole other world uh, uh, from which you view events at, uh, at an arena. And so we, we have a arena, seats about 16 people. You, well, you know what a suite is. And, uh, and it was, for instance, we had one homeless mother, one sister lives in, up here in the Y, who went to see, I think it was Barbara Streisand, you know. And, to do that, that means that they got to put on certain clothes. And so she wrote us a beautiful letter. She some of the letters uh, saying that what it felt like to be a woman again, to get dressed for an occasion. And we knew that was going to happen, that the events at the arena, uh, going to the arena as a group, we got a whole suite. You could take your party, you could take your family. So we got about 700 organizations to whom we related to. My daughter, Sharon, has created a way of being fair, up, bold, bold, uh, and accessible. We even got some money. We said we want some money to put, uh, to fund people at the base. So we created the DBNA, that's our organization, Downtown Brooklyn Neighborhood Alliance. Brooklyn Nets and the Forest City Radnor Community Foundation. So they gave us hundreds of thousands of dollars. And what we do every year we fund, give some money to. Can you imagine that? Because the weakness of the radical revolutionary tradition, they never had any resources, man. They were always begging at each other. You know, they ain't even had a place to meet. <laughs> but in any event, we said, listen, we want so much money. So we would fund organizations at the base, you know, uh, people we knew were doing the work. We didn't know how to get more money. 
didn't, didn't know how to write a proposal. Uh, and, and even if they wrote the proposal, they couldn't get any funding because you got to be in the track record. People will not fund you if you've never been funded before. And since we knew all of that, the funders said, well, okay, we give you money. You can give Catholic charity and, and WACP. Uh, no, we don't, we are, that's not what we are. We have the people who don't know how to get the fund. So what we do every year, we fund groups who don't even have a 501c3, don't even know what it is. They used to go out in their pocket to get the money to do the good things they're doing. We, we, we help them to become legally structured and then give them money to do the things that they are uh, uh, knowing how to do and then help them to continue getting funds from other sources. So I want to jump in here and just ask you uh, and circle back. Uh, DC, Million Man March. Uh, oh. You walked there. Yeah, yeah. How did that happen? Can we talk about well, I'm glad you asked. It's yeah. just in time because a part of uh, my ministry since 1934 was health. Um, I became vegan, and the, the Lord spoke to me. 1984, I was at, at the conclusion of the, of the Democratic Convention with Jesse Jackson, Reed Ronald, and, and that, that after that convention, I, the Lord spoke to son, you got to change your, 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 your eating style uh, because my family has a history of heart condition. It was preferable in my family that the men didn't live to be 60. So I was, you know, filling out, my gut was stretching out and, and I was, couldn't walk two steps without, you know, and the Lord spoke to me the same way the Lord spoke to me about the change of my life, change of eating habits. So I eventually became vegan and health became a part of my ministry. I saw our people dying, man. We lead in all the major diseases. Our people die, they don't even know what hit them. They, they don't make no connection between what they're consuming and their bad health and early demise. And therefore, that became a part of my ministry. And I start including that in my teaching, in my preaching, you know. And, and, and a part of the negotiation was in the footprint, Atlantic Yard footprint, is to build a wellness center, a health center, that we wanted to provide quality health. In the Fort Greene area in which this uh, arena uh, sits, this area, the infant mortality rate, which is the means by which you determine the index of the health of the people, uh, were comparable to what some say are third world countries. Our health is horrible, and we don't even know what hit us. My friends, man, most of my colleagues are gone. I'm going, seems like I'm going to a few, I just learned why Walker died. Yeah, a few weeks ago, Sam Penn, who was my 50-year friend, most of, most of my colleagues, I'm 87, most of my colleagues are gone. And, and, and never made the connection in the churches, man. We never, we watched our people die, and instead of our being informative, we would ourselves big and fat and sick, and and we we couldn't we couldn't we we couldn't say anything. I said to my people, when when I when it hit me, man, like a ton of bricks, wow! I looked at the south. I said, our people have been dying and never knew what hit them. And I became knowledgeable. I studied and become knowledgeable. The more I studied, the more I could see our people dying 
it is a Bible verse, my people are dying for lack of wisdom, lack of knowledge. And I would say to our people, so I said, listen, y'all can wise up. Some of y'all, if you don't change your lifestyle, you, you, you're digging your grave with your teeth, you're gonna go to an early grave. And, and, and I watched them. I watched some of my best members dying, much, much younger, cancer, heart condition, diabetic, you know. So uh, part of the negotiation to do that. We're concluding that now. Uh, the, the hospital that is gonna be the sponsor is Presbyterian Cornell in conjunction with Brooklyn Hospital is that they have agreed to some of the things that we want in the health center. They agreed that this is a partnership, which means that we will meet periodically, look in on them, make sure that they're delivering the service. Now, back to, you, you, you understand why, uh, for the Million Man March, I wanted to make a, a, uh, a statement regarding health, that I was 75 years old, and I said, I'm gonna walk uh, from Brooklyn to Washington, D.C. And I did. I walked from Brooklyn to Washington. I only took time off to go uh, to Houston, Texas, because of Katrina. Katrina had hit in Louisiana, and they were doing some work in, uh, in, in, uh, in Houston, Texas. And then I got back on the, on the highway, and I walked at 75. So that was a part of the ministry. I was still playing basketball at 75, man. But I don't mean I don't play those people. I mean competitively. We just walk, you know, in the park. And I played, I played until I was, hey, what, 2011, until I was around 80. I'm 87, around 80. And the only thing stopped me is I had a herniated disc probably coming from the contact because everybody's bigger, stronger than I was, younger. And I didn't ask no questions, didn't give none. And uh, I earned it and had an operation. And I got a lawsuit. I've never been, the only thing saved me was my vegan lifestyle. The guy left a hole in my throat, a fitula it's called. And every, but I could eat after three months. I was being fed through my stomach. After when I could eat, everything was infected, my throat and going to my spine. And that happened for one year. From, 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 from January 19, um, 2011 to June of 2012, I was being eaten alive and didn't know it. I know, all I know is I was hurting every day and getting smaller and smaller and complaining to the doctor who operated up on, on me. He, all he'd do is give me a pill, which subsided the pain for a while. And finally, I have a young doctor in this church in fact, she came a member of the church because I preach a sermon. Jesus Christ, revolutionary. Jesus Christ, African in origin, revolutionary in action. And she heard up in Ithaca, heard the sermon, came down and became a member of the church, completed her medical training. She's from Grenada, by the way. Uh, you know, that started a clinic in Grenada. She came and saw me. She said, Pastor, you've got to go see my classmate. I went to see her classmate. Dr. Bernard Rollins, I love him, we love him, and, and from Ghana, in fact, at the Hospital for Special Service. Man, that dude did the test on me, thorough test, and said to me, gathered all the family around, and he said to me, he said, well, Reverend, I got to tell you, you may not make it this time. And if you do make it, you'll probably be paralyzed from your neck down. And uh, <laughs> I said, well, what, my, what are my options? He said, well, you can do an operation as quick as we can, or you can 
You, you might live another three months. We don't understand how you're still alive. That's why I said it's my vegan lifestyle that, that kept me alive because it, it, the infection had not reached my spinal cord and that's what they were concerned that it, once it reached the spinal cord, I'd be cut. And so I, so I looked at my wife and looked at my children and I said, well, girl, I love you when I first saw you. I've loved you through the, through the years and, and if, I'm, if I do make it, and if I can't, if I'm stretched out, paralyzed, and I can't say anything else, I'll still say, I love you still. I may not be able to do anything else, <laughs> but I still love you, you know. And, you know, trying to inject a little humor because, I mean, I don't know what it means when you're a doctor, a genuine, renowned, prominent doctor tell you. And the way he said it, I knew that it was worse than even that, you know because he told me later, we didn't think you were going to make it at all. And he was saying, Reverend, I don't think you're going to make it. And so he did the operation, had four doctors to operate, man. I had first the doctor pull, throat doctor pull back the, the, the throat thing, look at that. I had a plastic surgeon take part of my chest, you know, to cover the hole. I had a disease doctor to chart the disease. Then the lead doctor, Arthur, uh, Dr. Rollins, took part of my hip bone because uh, uh, my C4 vertebrae had been eaten away. I mean, just a gap there had been eaten by it and put that in place. So anyway, uh, I became a health nut, as they say, uh, you know, health concern uh, as to what, what our people, uh, state of health of our people, it bothers me, it hurts me every day to see our people dying and don't even know why, what's hitting them. I got two more questions. Um, I want to ask you, um, looking at the future of America, um, African Americans have come a long way. However, a situation that's near and dear to your heart is still poverty. In the, in the historical perspective, um, the black church has always tied the political struggle together. What is your vision uh, moving on in the, I guess in the next pantheon of the black radicals and the black radical tradition? What is your vision of, for black America? Always hopeful. I, I've learned uh, from the two men that I have such a great respect, high point of my life, Dr. King and Delta Mandela, uh, always taught us hope. You know, if we hew out of the mountain of despair, the stone of hope. Uh, but the one who best capitalized for me was Bishop Tutu. He used to say at the heyday, of the apartheid movement. I'm addicted to hope. And I like that. I'm addicted to hope. So what I see on the horizon, uh, at least what I see in the immediate uh, present, uh, doesn't look very hopeful, uh, especially with Trump in office. But, the, you know, somebody has said that God puts a wrinkle in history. It, 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 when, when, when the gods uh, want to destroy a person, they first make them mad, you know. So Trump, paradoxically, may be the best thing that happened to us in a long time, in that he has brought together the worst elements for everybody to see graphically, visibly, conspicuously, blatantly. And it, it, it might 
bring us together. I think it was Marcus Garvey who said that nothing else will unify us, conditions will. And so if, if nothing else will unify, Trump will. And it might be bringing together people uh, uh, again, all of, the, all of what I shall I call, all of the decent, fair, all the people who want to make the world better for all of us. Uh, uh, I think uh, coalescing uh, together. The, the question always is, who can bring the, them together? You know, like I think, I, I like to think I contributed to that uh, in the past. I'm pleased that my daughter, as I mentioned, is calling black women together in Chicago, I mean in Atlanta. So while what I see uh, is, is not promising, but I'm addicted to hope, or in, in the biblical expression, I walk by faith. I'm, I'm older. One thing about being 87 years old, you've seen a lot of changes. When I was young, it didn't seem as though South would change. It was just, imp imp that was the way it was. It, it, the forces that set atop these dehumanizing system seemed implacable, invincible. But we saw change in the South. South Africa, it would seem, was not going to change. We screamed up and down the streets, free Mandela, you know, free South Africa. Uh, but I don't know that any of us thought that we'd live to actually see uh, Mandela free and South Africa free, such as it is. Uh, the African continent, it was 1955, it was 1950, 1945, about 100-200 African leaders met in Manchester, England to talk about African liberation, how we're going to free our liberation, how we're going to free, how we're going to free our country. Twelve years later, 1957, Kwame Nkrumah, who was secretary of, of that gathering, became president of, of Ghana, who was then the Gold Coast, the president of Ghana. And I remember at the six-pack, six six-pack, I was at six-pack in African Congress in Tanzania, and we gathered around Ross McConnell. Ross McConnell had been the, one of the financiers of uh, the African Liberation Movement and who were at Fifth Pack in, in Manchester, England. And somebody asked him, said, man, when y'all met in Manchester, did you really think that Kwame uh, was going to be president and Ghana was going to be free in 12 years? And I remember he said, man, if we, somebody would have said that that would have had me to put a straight jacket on it. Nobody thought that really that was going to happen. That was in 1945 that they didn't, they didn't think it was going to happen. In 1957, uh, Kwame Nkrumah led the people in Ghana, uh, Suki Ture in Guinea, Omo Kenyatta in Kenya. And in one generation, over 40 African continents had, had gained their independence to a degree, some degree of independence. I've lived long enough to have seen that change. I've lived long enough to see a black man, president. Now, you know, some people don't think much of that, you know. Uh, uh, I said to the guy downstairs, there was a difference between Southern thinking and Northern thinking. Those of us in the South who knew what that situation was, we knew what the situation was. And every day we were confronted 
was a, a, a demonic system that robbed us of our dignity. And we saw our people being humiliated daily. Um, you pay your money in the front of the bus and get off the bus and go to the back. And then some little white guy come along, little white girl, white boy come along, tell your gray-haired grandma, get up, get up, get up, honey. We have to sit down. She's got to get up. Your grandpa, you got to get up every day. You didn't have that in the North. In the North, the Negroes thought they were free. At least they could, you know, go to the same toilet, bathroom with white folks. You might even get them one. <laughs> so so they, <laughs> they had a different idea. But, and so for us in the South, we have the South. I mean, now we could go whatever hotel, whatever restaurant, and not only that, work at the restaurant, you know, you know and a black man become president of the United States. We only throw black people. You couldn't even get in the front door of city halls. You went in the back door with a mop and a broom. Now, you, you know, just to think that you can go in the front door in the White House. There's a black man going in the front door. You couldn't even ride the bus where you were. Now there's a black man getting on Air Force One, you know. And this, we had a different feel about that. So I've lived to see a black man become president. And guess what? My daughter, can you imagine that? Brother, that's straight out of the streets of Brooklyn, straight out of the streets, of, straight out of the jailhouses. Got a daughter who some people say was responsible for creating the kind of convention, the greatest convention the Democrats ever had. That's not pastoral, that's not parental pride. I was there, I was at the executive committee meeting when Ben Filer rose, I wanna make a motion. Leah Daughtry has created, and what's his name, the governor, I can't think of the guy who chaired it, as well as I know, and the chairperson of the party at the time, have created the greatest convention the Democratic Party ever had. And then Mrs. Clinton, Hillary Clinton, come back and ask this, this street, this pastor, this daughter, would you please do it again? Would you please be the CEO of a Democratic convention? I'm going to be running and I want you to. And she does it again, right? Change, sure I've seen change. And as she did the convention in 2000, and I was there, I saw it. I, it was so much momentum, unity created by the Democratic Party. It, Obama rolled that the momentum into the White House of black men. <laughs> Will there be change? I have to hope. I've lived long enough to see dramatic changes, dreams coming true. Do I hope? I have to hope. I mean, I've seen it. 87 years, I've seen it. And so, I mean, I, like King said, I mean, I get y'all with y'all. I mean, I get there with you, but I believe we're going to make the promised land. I want to, I want to end with this. Um, if you could talk about your relationship with Tupac, because um, he's, he's one of, I guess, the younger people who will be watching this film, that's someone who they sort of resonate with music-wise. Right. Yeah. If you could connect sort of his family into the black radical tradition. I know his mother was a political prisoner. No, if you could share your thoughts on political prisoners. Right. So let's start with uh, your relationship with Tupac and then a thought. Uh, right. Yeah, Pac was remember Fanny brought him here. Fanny, uh, Fanny Shakur, his mother, uh, brought him here when he was about ten or eleven. But my relationship with uh, Fanny grew out of my relationship with the party, Black Panther Party. 
Uh, as I said, I'm, I was aligned with the radical tradition in the Black Panther Party. I would attend court, you know, et cetera. So Finney and I became close, and, and she would attend the rallies, and et cetera. So obviously, when she wanted to join a church, which is a family tradition from Lumberton, South Carolina, um, she joined the church here and brought Tupac with her, and Acetua, by the way, and her sister, Afeni's sister, Gloria. And they joined, and I remember standing right there in the pulpit, asking Tupac, they were standing right there, asking Tupac, what do you want to be when you grow up? And, you know, he kind of looked halfway down and looked, I want to be a revolutionary. <laughs> you know, I smiled. And uh, I said, you do? Well, that's great, fine, you know. And uh, I obviously would think no other than uh, Feeney and the Black Panther Party. So he was here, 11, and then he moved to uh, uh, Baltimore. And unfortunately, Feeney became hooked on uh, crack, you know, which blew his mind. He, he couldn't just adjust to that situation. And then they sent him to California, where he stayed with some relatives who were not the best role models. Let's put it that way. In fact, he was a uh, uh, squatter and still getting A's in, in school, which tells you something that even his brilliancy uh, grew out of something inside of him. And at the same time, it demonstrated that when he wanted to achieve something, he was going to achieve. And in fact, as one of his poems, one of his saying is a stone, what is a rose that grew out of the stone. And uh, so when he became popular, uh, Feeney would always call me and say, hey, Pop's in town. Pastor, will you go by and say a word to him, please? And I would go by and say something. I think when he did the movie, what was that movie in Harlem, Above the Rain? Was that Juice, was it? Uh, that I went up to you know, talk with him, always respectful. And, but he was in a different lane, and I don't encroach upon people's lifestyle and uh, just wave. We really connected during the time that he became uh, involved with this woman. Uh, I went to the trial, you know, and heard the sentence. Uh, then he used to say to me, man, he said, Pastor, I, I would never abuse I, that woman. I, I don't need to do that. If anything, I need to keep them off me. I don't need to be raping and abusing anybody. In fact, this, the, the sister, had, uh, had uh, from what I understand, and it came out in the court, had done an oral thing on the, on the, on the dance floor. So when he went, to, he went to the hotel, and we did whatever they do, and on the way out, allegedly, uh, some of his entourage uh, uh, did something to the system, right? And he used to say to me, he said, listen, uh, I didn't do anything, Pastor, but I understand there's some things that I did do that I'm paying for. And the other thing he said, and I used to use it quite often, he said, you know, Pastor, I'm being punished because I didn't show up. He said, I could have stopped it, I could have, whatever that was going on, all I had to do was wave my hand, and I could have stopped it. But I didn't, I didn't show up. And obviously you can see where I'm going with that, man, is that, uh, that's the story of how many millions of people. We don't show up when we should show up for somebody else. 
So when he was sentenced, we really reconnected. I used to visit him two, three times a week in, in Rackers Island. And then when he went up to Clinton, I used to go up to Clinton to see him. And we had some really deep, interesting conversations during the time uh, that he was there. And one of them that I repeated a thousand times, particularly to young people, out of the, what we say, clear blue, but I like to think uh, what people call out of the clear blue or a or epiphany moment, I like to think it's a God moment. And uh, he was always writing, always thinking, and uh, there was one play he was writing, and, uh, and he asked me my opinion, and I told him, I was, you know, obviously I'm from the church, somebody was escaping from some situation and they ran into a refugee home. I said, well, why don't you send him into church, man? Let him come into church, at least in our church. You know, people come, our church is a refugee place. It's a beacon on the thoroughfare, they, you know? And he just laughed. Uh, you know, at any time he was thinking they didn't want to be committed. He was too respectful to disagree, you know? Uh, one time I said to him, I said, Papa, man, you have all this influence among young people. Let's make a deal here now. Why don't we travel together, you rap, and then let me rap, okay? And he all, again, he wouldn't say no, he, 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 all he do is laugh, I showed him big tears. <laughs> oh, Lord, he just laughed about it. But I was serious, I, I, man, the guy got so much influence about the young people. And the, but the, the main thing I, I, he said that I tried to get across and one, one, one day we were just sitting, and when we did, couldn't talk, we just sit, you know, we're comfortable being, I was comfortable being quiet in his presence, and I assume he was. You know, some people, you got to talk, you got to make word noise. But some people, you, 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 your relationship is deeper than word noise. So this particular day, out of clear blue, God spoke through him. And he said, hey, Pastor, you know, uh, when I want to accomplish something, what I do is I draw a picture of it or find a picture in a magazine, and I put it on the wall over my bed. And he said, uh, every day I would stare at the picture, you know. I will not sleep in the bed. I'll sleep anywhere, in the bathroom, on the floor, on the couch but I will not sleep in the bed until I achieve what I put on the wall. And man, I, you know, I said, Pop, I didn't know you were in metaphysics, man. He said, what is that? I don't know what you're talking about. And uh, I said, what you have said is a universal principle. If you want to achieve something, what you do is objectify it put it out there before you, and you stare at it, think about it, concentrate on it. From all angles, think about it, and then make some kind of commitment that you're not going to do so-and-so until so-and-so. And, -so and, -so. and the universal principle is, God has fixed this universe that you will be drawn to it or it 
will be drawn to you. But a rendezvous will happen. The two will meet. That's fixed into the universe. And, and Jesus put it another way. Jesus said, whatsoever things you desire, when you pray, believe that you have them and you shall receive them. Notice, believe that you have them. In the spiritual world, this is a metaphysics, in the spiritual world, in the unseen world, things are set in motion as a result of your passion, your desire. You set things in motion. You set a certain energy in motion, right? So it's a magnetism that attracts to you what you need, who you need to achieve you the object on the wall. And so that's a part of my teaching, it's a part of our ministry, is to, is to teach the development, this, this universal principle. I just want to ask you, um, what are your thoughts on political prisoners? And we can uh, end it after that. People oh, yeah, I'm, I'm supportive. I still write letters. And I, in my visits, I still visit. Uh, I, I, I understand because that was a part of a, 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 of a season in our struggle that these young brothers who, uh, who, was, uh, who wanted to find a, a, a solution uh, to our challenges and didn't see that what was in operation at the time was doing it. And so they wanted to find a way to do that. And they were at war because of Contel Paul program. Uh, Edgar J. Hoover, I chaired uh, FBI activities in the 60s. What was that? I think that was the 80s, uh, I think in 1980 in Washington, in which everybody brought their papers uh, as to what the FBI had done to them. And so Edgar Hoover had declared war on, the, uh, on, on our movement. And so they were in a war uh, at the time. And, uh, and these were some of the most committed uh, brothers and sisters we've got. And I was pleased to be able to fund uh, uh, Odinga, you know, who came home and, and uh, started the move, started the organization and making the contribution. But these, this was the kind of commitment that these young brothers and young sisters had at the time. And so, uh, as I said, any, any way we can be helpful, um, we'd be helpful. Uh, to them. Uh, some of them are still there, some have died, but we should never forget of them. We should never, you know, sometimes I, I support the Irish struggles. I went to Belfast, you know, I walked the street with machine gun in my head when Bobby Sands and some of them Irish strugglers uh, decided to starve themselves uh, to death in, in the prison, went to the cemetery. I did his memorial. We understand uh, the political, uh, we understand uh, other people's struggle and the methods that they feel they have to use. But when it comes to us, we, too many of us, uh, you know, are reluctant to endorse, well, I'm not in that crowd. You know, I may not uh, uh, believe that, the, that the, the strategy or the methods employed is the most effective one, uh, but uh, I'm supportive of the methods. I understand the methods that uh, 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 
applied to achieve the objective. My criticism is for those who make it, for those whose actions and systems and institutions they have created that force people to believe I have to use any means necessary to get change. That's where the criticism belongs. That's where the condemnation belongs on those uh, who create the systems that dehumanize people, that impoverish people, that rob people of a sense of dignity and worth so that people have to spend their lives. That's that to, to the people saying, listen, I'm a pastor, man. I, I have people in the hospital. I have people who have emotional problems. I've got people, I've got to do pastoral work. I shouldn't have to be out in the street marching, demonstrating, going to jail, uh, be arguing with people. For what? So that people be treated that they're fairly and decent, so that people have enough to eat, so that people get a job, so that people have a sense of their own self-worth. Why do I have to do that? You know, why do I have to fight to, to, just to say I'm black? You know, as Jane Baldwin said, to be black in America and relatively conscious to be in a rage almost all the time. Why do I have to be in a rage almost all the time? Because I have to be of a certain nationality. No, those who create the systems that make people be other than uh, uh, have to do certain things uh, to, for their dignity and for their worth and for their struggle. Okay, cool. Thank you.